Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. The Council of Trent was a Roman Catholic ecumenical council which met in response to the Protestant Reformation. This council defined many of the Roman Catholic Church's teachings on justification, and justification is how we are made right with God. All right, so it's found that this this uh, teaching on justification is found in the sixth session of the Council of Trent, and it's not too long of a read if you're interested. So uh, here's an important quote from the Council of Trent, which will be applicable to this episode. And so this is from session six, chapter four, and the Roman Catholic Church defines justification as, quote, being a translation from that state wherein man is born a child of the first Adam, so this is talking about from original sin, to the state of grace and of the adoption of the sons of God through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our Savior. All right, this is the important part. And this translation, this this is justification, translation from original sin into a state of grace, okay? So here it is. And this translation, since the promulgation of the gospel, cannot be affected without the labor of regeneration or the desire thereof. As it is written, unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, so the the important line is that justification cannot be affected without the labor of regeneration or the desire thereof. The labor of regeneration in the Catholic understanding is referring to baptism. So Protestants have a different view, but but uh, that's actually not important in today's discussion, maybe more on baptism later. But what's important to understand is that in Catholicism, you cannot be justified unless you have been baptized. Now, this may lead you to think of this hypothetical scenario. Well, what if someone is on their way to the church to get baptized and they die in a car accident, okay? Well, notice the next phrase in Trent's definition. So it says they justification cannot be affected unless they or without the labor of regeneration or the desire thereof or the desire to be baptized. And so if a if a person desires to be baptized, God recognizes that desire and treats them as if they were baptized, even if they die on the way to the church. And so the thief on the cross that gets saved on the cross right beside Jesus, the thief on the cross is an example Catholics will use of this concept of the desire thereof. So he was dying on the cross when he was justified. He was unable to get baptized, but God recognized the genuineness of the thief's faith. And so without actually physically being baptized, uh, that, that thief was still justified before God. Now, let that sink in. Just stop and think about it. Let that sink in. God knows the heart. Even though the physical act of baptism did not take place, God knew the heart of the thief on the cross, and, and God knows the heart of the hypothetical man who dies on the way to the church to get baptized. All right, so God will overlook the physical uh, actions not taking place because God knows the heart. Let that sink in. That's going to be so important later on. Now, last week, I gave a basic biblical defense of the Protestant view of justification. That is that justification is by faith alone, or sola fide is a Latin phrase that, that was the cry of the Protestant Reformation. It means faith alone. So Paul's letters to the Romans and the Galatians contain the largest sections of the Bible devoted to justification. And so sometime this week, try to read Romans 1 through 8 
all at one time and just follow Paul's argument all the way through. Uh, The same with Galatians. Try to read the whole book in one sitting. It will help you see the logical flow of Paul's writing rather than just looking at a a, a verse or two here and there. Because you'll come across lots of popular verses, but when you see how they all fit together and the argument that Paul is constructing, it's brilliant. And and so that, that will really show you a lot about the Bible's teaching on justification. Now, a very important part of that for today's discussion is Romans 4, verses 2 through 10, all right? And so here's uh, Paul writing to the church in, in Rome. He says this, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that is a quote from Genesis 15, 6, by the way. All right, back to Romans. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. All right, now let me just stop right there. It says, and to the one who does not work, it's, it's talking about not trusting in works as a means of justification. It's not saying the person who is just lazy and just says they have faith. It's talking about someone who, it says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. All right. And then, so this continues with the Romans 4 passage. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So Paul's whole point in this passage is that justification for Abraham occurred by faith before Abraham was circumcised. Thus, circumcision is not required for justification. Rather, it is by faith that we are justified. Now, you you may be asking, what does circumcision have to do with any of today's discussion? Well, when we get to James chapter 2, another event in Abraham's life will be used in speaking of Abraham's justification. And it's when Abraham was obedient to God in preparing Isaac to be sacrificed. So you may already know the story, but at the last second, God stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, his son, and God provided a ram for the sacrifice. And this is a picture of Jesus being the sacrifice provided by God for the sins of mankind. Anyway, the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac comes after circumcision. So here's the chronology. In Genesis 15, 6, the Bible says, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, two chapters later, in Genesis 17, Abraham is obedient in circumcision. And then a few chapters later, in Genesis 22, we have the story of Abraham being obedient in binding Isaac to be sacrificed. So, before circumcision or sacrificing Isaac, the Bible said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Counted to him as righteousness is another way of saying Abraham was justified. So last week, I spent a lot of time trying to explain why I believe justification is by faith alone. Now, a favorite verse of Catholics in response to the faith alone or sola fide 
is James 2.24, and it says this, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And just so you know, the only time that faith alone is mentioned in the Bible, that, that phrase, faith alone, is right here, and it says not by faith alone. So <laughs> Catholics absolutely love to bring that up in debates and things like that. I've heard it a million times in, in doing research. So just be aware of that. If you um, are a Protestant out there and you believe faith alone and and you're you know discussing this with your Catholic friend, just be aware that that's the only time faith alone is is used together in the Bible. And it's not a big deal because it's just it's just language, but the the concept of being justified by faith alone, obviously, I believe is very clear in scripture. So, how do we reconcile Paul's teaching with James? Paul's talking about it's faith, 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 faith alone. And then James says, you see that a person's justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, so so how do we reconcile these, you know, Paul's teaching and James' teaching? As, as Christians, we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and that the Holy Spirit, you know, men were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote. And so we the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict himself in Paul and James' writing. So we have to put these together. But it's actually pretty easy. As long as you can read and think then you you can you can look at the passages and this is very simple so hopefully i can explain it well today now you can always connect with me bearchristianity at gmail.com and at the real bear martin on instagram and this episode of bear christianity is sponsored by cup for life are you tired of washing a million different kid cups all with different size straws and rubber inserts to prevent leaks Is your house a storage container for half-empty water bottles? Not anymore. Introducing Cup for Life. Cup for Life is a revolutionary new way of liquid acquisition. When a baby is born, before being held by the mother, a Cup for Life representative will help your new baby bond to their cup. This will literally be their Cup for Life. With 20 different lid attachments and size adjustments, Cup for Life will be with you from apple juice to prune juice and everything in between. Because the Cup for Life bond happens at birth, your child will never beg you for a cheap, overpriced, restaurant-themed cup ever again. Bear Christianity listeners receive three free months of auto-refill when they use the coupon code IWILLCUPYOU. With the auto-refill service, a Cup for Life drone hovers above your cup, fully stocked with any beverage imaginable, so your cup always stays full. Cup for Life. Thirst no more. Details may vary. Some restrictions may apply. The book of James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It is a book with practical wisdom for the Christian life. Although there are a few different theories as to which James wrote this letter, most believe it is the same James who was a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. He is also believed to be the half-brother of Jesus. Of course, this gets tricky for Catholics because they have to believe Mary remained a virgin her whole life, even after Jesus was born. It's a central dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. You must believe Mary was a virgin her whole life. If you reject that, you are outside of the communion of the Roman Catholic Church and in very serious danger of hell. That's a whole separate topic, but we'll get to it. Not today. Anyway, James, at the very least, is a person within the early Christian community who has authority to write such a bold letter. Of the 104 verses, there are 50 imperative statements or commands, such as, be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
So James is concerned with how the true Christian should be living. A lot of Paul's writing is about what is happening on a spiritual level. Uh, Paul is is deeper in a sense. And, and, and so Paul starts out with what's kind of happening in the spiritual realm and a lot of doctrinal type stuff. And then he gets into application towards the end of his letters. Uh, Romans and Ephesians are probably the two most popular that are structured this way. So this is the, um, so this is how Paul sort of lays out his argument. James, however, just jumps straight in with application. James is very practical, like on the ground wisdom for the Christian. And so James two chapters, or excuse me, James two verses fourteen through twenty six will be our main text today. But here's just a sample of the verses leading up to that. James one chapter, or uh, good night. I'm missing up the the chapters and the verses a ton. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, all right, says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, this is what happens with true faith. It becomes stronger through trials. It perseveres. Its full effect or completeness is the result of the true faith. If one does not have true faith, they will not persevere. They will not remain steadfast. And James comes back around to this idea a few verses later, James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James 1.16-18 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So here is a clear statement from James that salvation is from the Lord. It says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Also, we know that salvation is a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift is, quote, from above. Now, the Greek word used there is anothen, and it's translated a few different ways. And so in John 3, 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, again is that exact same Greek word, anothen. It, it sort of has a double meaning. And so you could translate that verse, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so James and Jesus are saying that salvation is a gift from above. In John 4.10, Jesus clarifies this even more when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying that to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Ephesians 2.8, you've heard me say this verse a million times lately, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So Jesus, Paul, and James all agree that eternal life is a gift from God. In Roman Catholicism, you receive this gift at baptism, but if you commit a mortal sin, you lose the gift, and then you have to do penance to get the gift back. But the gift is not as good as it was the first time, because now you have to suffer temporal punishment on earth or in purgatory. So the gift, and I'm using that that word that term loosely here, the gift of salvation in Roman Catholicism is more like the ability to earn eternal life. 
God's grace works to help motivate you to earn it for yourself, to merit more and more righteousness through your good works. Um, So your faith is part of it, but faith is not enough, even if it's true faith. In Roman Catholicism, faith is necessary for justification, but not sufficient for justification. You must do those good works that are required to continue to earn more and more merit, uh, slowly infusing righteousness into yourself and making yourself more and more uh, perfect. In James, So back to James, James 1, 21 and 22, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James 1, 26 and 27, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 2, verses 1 through 9, I'm not going to read it all, but basically it is in, James is instructing the reader to not show partiality to the rich over the poor. And then in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Let me read that again. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So before God, there are only two possible states. You are guilty or innocent. There is not partial credit. So think about this verse, James 2.10, in light of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. They teach there's venial sins and mortal sins. Uh, that there's somehow a difference in the in the magnitude of sin. Some sins separate you completely from God, such as mortal sin. Other sins only damage your relationship with God, as in venial sins. Now, is this Roman Catholic teaching consistent with James 2? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, any sin, he has become guilty of all of it. Jesus said the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Can you honestly say that every waking hour of your life, you are honoring the Lord, you're you're loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're loving your neighbor as yourself? I mean, that's the most basic commandment, and we break it every single day. And James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point, one point, He's become guilty of all of it. Now, it doesn't mean that if we if we tell a lie that we are um, that we should um, be put in prison for murder. Okay, it's it's not talking about like a a worldly guilt for uh, for sins. But it, basically, uh, let me let me just say it this way: John Frame, a Protestant theologian, he writes about this in in James two ten. He says God's law is interconnected. If you disobey one statute says James 2.10, you have violated the whole law. Why? Because sin is of the heart. If you have the kind of heart that would disobey one word of God, you have the kind of heart that would disobey any other word of God. So sin, even the smallest sin, separates us from God. There's not this distinction of mortal sin and venial sin. Any sin separates you from God. Adam and Eve ate a, a fruit and, and it separated them from God. Disobedience to God in any way separates you from God. So in summary, leading up to our main passage, which is going to be James 2, 14 through 26, 
in our main passage, or, or summarizing the point so far, James has encouraged the Christians to count their trials as joy because their faith is strengthened when they remain steadfast. He has reminded them that every good and perfect gift is from above. And then James instructs them on the practical things a true Christian should do. Put away filthiness and wickedness. Be doers and not hearers only. Bridle your tongue. Care for the orphans and widows. Do not forsake the poor or show favoritism to the rich. All of these are practical things. And a Roman Catholic and Protestant would agree that these are all things that a true Christian will be doing. Uh, so now that we have the context, let's walk through James 2, 14 through 26. I'm going to read the whole thing in one take and then go through it verse by verse. Here we go. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So let's jump in. Verse, uh, verse 14. So James 2 verse 14. He says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So James is asking a rhetorical question. Can a type of faith where someone says they have it, but they have nothing to give evidence for it, is that kind of faith, is that type of faith a true faith? Is it a living faith? And, you know, and then he says, can that faith save him? Now, I know sometimes in these podcasts, I bring up the Greek language, and I don't mean to get all nerdy, but, but it's, it's important in situations like this. Some translations simply read, can faith save him at the end of that verse? And, and they're leaving out this distinction of a type of faith. Can that faith save him? So in the Greek, there is an article before the word faith, which in, in the way the article works in Greek, it's emphasizing this type of faith mentioned earlier. That's why a lot of translations will say, can that faith save him? That faith being the one that does not have the works. So this is what James is addressing in the following verses. A lot of times, I, I've, I've listened and read a ton on this. A lot of times, Catholics will just go straight to James 2.24 and quote it and, and leave out the rest of it. And so again, James 2.24, just to remind you, is this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, if you just read that one single verse, then it, it, it sounds like it's saying one thing, but you've got to read it in the context of the passage here. So this whole section starts with verse 14, and James is asking this rhetorical question. If a person says they have faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? 
So we've got to read the rest of these verses with that lens in mind. Paul, in Romans chapters 3 and 4, is talking about how a sinner is considered righteous before God. James is discussing how a person can show their faith. How does one know they have true faith? How do others know a person has true faith? What's the evidence of true faith? That is what James is getting at. Again, James is trying to be practical for the Christian, whereas Paul is is more of a theological, doctrinal type discussion. So in the next verse, James 2.15, James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, verse 16, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So the profession is empty without action. You, you cannot truly mean be warmed and filled, and because if you were truly concerned for the person, then you would do something to help them be warmed and filled. So you, you can't be truly concerned and do nothing. The actions are wrapped up in the true concern and love for others in need. And so this is an example for James. James is, is using this as an example. Uh, in the next verse, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So in this passage, James is contrasting dead faith that, it, that only says it has faith but doesn't have anything to show for it. That's dead faith versus a true living faith. In verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. This is a key word. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That is how we show our faith, by the things that we do. And so in this in this little conversation that James is saying, he says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. This is a conversation between one person to another person, or, or James and another person. This is not a conversation between God and another person. God can know someone's heart, just like God knew Abraham had true faith and counted him as righteous before Abraham did anything to prove his faith was true. So on the human level, we cannot know someone else's heart. How do we show faith? This is what James' point is here. How, how do you show your faith apart from works? You can't do it. True faith will have works. Now, James 2.19, it says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So a simple head knowledge of God is not true faith. You can believe the Bible is God's word. You can believe the doctrine of the Trinity. You can, complete, you can be completely orthodox in all of your theological knowledge. And, and think about this. The demons have a better, more accurate understanding of God than we do. A theologian, A.W. Pink, he's a Protestant theologian. He says this, what is the fruit of their believing though, right? Does it influence their hearts and lives? Does it transform their conduct Godward and manward? It does not. Then what is their believing worth? And, and that's a rhetorical question. It's not worth anything. If you just have this belief without it affecting the way you live, then it's not true belief. It's not a living faith or belief. James 2.20, do you want to be shown? Again, you know, James is talking about how you see, how you show. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So who in this verse, who is, is Abraham justified before? Did God not know if Abraham had true faith until he made this sacrifice? Now, if you go to the story, and I've heard a Catholic use this in a, in a debate, 
in the story of Abraham and Isaac, God does say, you know, right at, right before God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, God does say, now I know that you love me because you were willing to sacrifice your son. Now, does this mean God doesn't know if our faith is true or, you know, not until we show it by works? It, it's it That's silly. We know God knows everything. God knows our heart. And so I want you to stop right here and I want you to go back to the Council of Trent quote at the beginning of this episode. If you remember, I said it, it said justification cannot be affected without the labor of regeneration, that is baptism, or the desire thereof. Now, again, why did Catholics, why did the people that wrote the, you know, at the Council of Trent, why did they include or the desire thereof? Well, it's sort of a safeguard for the person who, you know, hypothetically dies on their way to church to get baptized. The whole concept being that God knows the heart of the individual. God knows. So does God tell Abraham, now I know that you love me, when Abraham was on the way to sacrifice Isaac? No. Abraham is about to bring the knife down when God says, now I know you love me. So this is God using human language and terminology. It does not mean that God doesn't know Abraham's heart. God knew Abraham was a true believer who had living faith back in Genesis 15:6, when we are told Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, so Catholics trust that God knows the heart of people on their way to get baptized. Those who have a desire to be baptized yet do not have an opportunity, God knows that, and God will accept them and justify them as if they had been baptized because God knows their heart. God knows their desire. So think about it. What is it that actually justifies that person? For God, it is that person's faith. They do not have to do the physical act of baptism. There's nothing that that person has to do because God knows their heart. They haven't done any work. They, have, they, they haven't been baptized, but God sees the desire. He sees their desire to be obedient in baptism. That's what the Catholic is assuming when he says, of the, or the desire thereof, when talking about how baptism is necessary. And so God knows the heart before we perform any religious act, before we do anything in obedience, God knows our heart. And God knew Job's heart. When he allowed Satan to take everything from Job, God knew Job would remain faithful. So it is only the faith that truly matters to God. He inspects the heart. And even, get this, with that quote from Trent, even Catholics believe this deep down, which is why they include, or the desire thereof. Okay, the works, the work of, of baptism, and when I say work, the, the physical action, the uh, being baptized, the work does not make a person right before God, because God knows their heart. And Catholics admit this, because if, if a person doesn't get baptized, God will still accept them if they have the desire to be baptized, and they just never had an opportunity. So the baptism is simply a way of demonstrating what has already happened on the inside. And so true faith will have works, but we do not bring our works to God and say, look what I've done. And I'm, I'm not even saying Catholics do that, but you know, we're not bringing our works to God and saying, look what I've done, you, know, you should accept me. No, we come to God with empty hands of faith. It is not by any works that we've done. But a true faith is ready to show good works. All right, back to James, uh, verse 22 now. James says, you see that faith was active along with his works, talking about Abraham being obedient and sacrificing Isaac. So you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. 
And so again, look at the common use of James' language. He's using words like see and show throughout this passage. The word completed here is most often translated perfected in the in my translation that I use a lot, the ESV. Uh, it's also translated fulfilled, accomplished, finished. And so this is key. Without living and true faith, Abraham would not have done the work. If Abraham did not truly have faith in God, he would never have climbed that Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. Therefore, true faith is the only thing you need. The works are simply the follow-through of your true faith. So if I have fire, I will also have heat. Fire is like the faith, and heat is like the works. The heat flows from the fire. So you can have heat without fire, but you cannot have fire without heat. You can have works without faith. Plenty of people can do good works that that don't have true faith in God. So you can have works without faith, but you cannot have true faith without works that that are the follow-through. In James 2.23, it says this, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, notice how it says scripture was fulfilled. When we read of Abraham obeying God in circumcision or binding Isaac and, and raising the blade to sacrifice Isaac, that is not when Abraham was justified. It is the proof that he was justified back in Genesis 15:6. It says this, but scripture was fulfilled, almost as if it was a prophecy. Like, and so, so when as the reader, when we read Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then we keep reading and we read, oh man, Abraham was obedient in circumcision. That probably had to be tough to do as an adult male. Um, and then we read a little bit later, man, Abraham was obedient to God in in wrapping up his son and was about to sacrifice him. Man, that takes a lot of faith. We see Abraham's faith. And then when we look back at Genesis 15, 6, it says here, scripture was fulfilled when it said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So when, when we read of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, it's like we can look back and, and the Bible says, see, I told you so. I told you Abraham had true faith back in Genesis 15, 6. And so when was Abraham justified? Again, Genesis 15, 6, when he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. At that moment, Abraham was justified. He had living faith, true faith. And so who's able to know if we have true faith or dead faith? Even before we do any good works, it's God. He knows. In in James 2, 24, now we get to our main verse. So after all of that, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, what if you think about, what if you read it like this? You see that a person is justified. You are able to see. You can see that a person is justified by their works, by the things that they do, not by their simple profession of faith alone. We can see it. We can see that a person is justified by the way they act. And so we we can't see faith like God sees faith. We, we only can see what people are doing. Uh, also, it, it's internal too. If we, if I, if I'm going to inspect myself, am I, if I'm going to say, you know, to myself, Bear, do you have true faith, or is your faith just a dead profession of faith? Then the only way I can, uh, you know, I can think about, man, you know, I have a desire to study God's word. I have a desire to share what I've learned from God's word. I'm, you know, again, in no way am I boasting or bragging, but I'm saying as I inspect my own heart. 
I can see that the Holy Spirit is working inside of me and 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 works. Um, praise, glory to God flows out of that. And so that is evidence to me even of, of my own true faith. That is how I can see it. That is how I can know that I have true faith. Because the heart is deceitful. We 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 have a tough time just knowing our heart without seeing the things that we're doing. And so I, you know, that's that's how I can know that I have true faith by seeing the the things that I'm doing. It's not that the works, it's not that doing this podcast, it's not like I'm gonna get to heaven and say, look at what I did, God. You know, I have 28 episodes of a <laughs> of a, a Christianity podcast. That has nothing to do with it. It is simply the outflowing. It is a a passion, a desire to share what God has taught me in my own life. In James 2.25, we get to Rahab the prostitute. So, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab was a pagan prostitute who lived in Jericho. She was not part of the Israelite nation. So when Israel was spying out the city, Rahab hid Israel's spies and provided them with safe passage back to the Israelite camp. So Rahab had heard of the power with which God freed the Israelites from the Egyptians and how they had conquered the surrounding kings. So she decided to help the Israelite spies because she feared the God of Israel more than any other gods or rulers. And so in Joshua 2, verses 11 through 13, listen to Rahab's profession of faith in in the God of Israel. She says this to the spies as she's helping them hide. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will say, that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. You cannot assume that that Rahab here was justified by works alone. Now, James does not mention Rahab's faith, but her profession of faith is found in the verses I just read. Also, Rahab is included in Hebrews 11, which is sometimes referred to as the Hall of Faith. It lists several people of faith throughout the Bible. So Hebrews 11.31, it says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So Rahab demonstrated her faith in the God of Israel by helping the spies. Her faith is the reason for her courage. She risked her life based on her faith in the God of Israel. Now, this is really cool. Just a side note, in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus is given, and Rahab is mentioned in Matthew 1, verse 5. She became the great-great-grandmother of King David and also part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. So that's a really cool, um, really cool, and that's the rest of the story for Rahab type of uh, moment there. All right. Our last verse in our James 2 passage, James 2, 26, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. True faith, true living faith will have works. Throughout this passage, James is contrasting two different types of faith, dead faith and living faith. The examples of Abraham and Rahab used by James are examples where their faith led them to actions which correspond to their faith. We see their faith through their actions. Uh, Again, theologian A.W. Pink, he's a Protestant theologian, he concludes this in his discussion of of James 2. He says, A holy heart and and an obedient walk are the scriptural evidence of our having been justified by God. 
Now, in closing, James clearly shows that true faith will be accompanied by works. But what works is James talking about? Did Rahab have to sacrifice her son on an altar like Abraham? Well, no, of course not. Did Abraham have to hide spies and commit treason against the leader of Jericho? No. These are the works that James is talking about when he, when he refers to justification of Abraham and Rahab. These works are simply acts that demonstrate Abraham and Rahab truly believed in the God they professed to have faith in. Their works were individual works which only applied to them. James doesn't mention circumcision or any other religious ritual type work in these verses. If this is supposed to be such a strong passage about how one is justified before God rather than how one shows he is justified, then where is, where is the labor of regeneration? Where is penance? Where is mass? Where are all the Hail Marys and the Our Fathers? Where's the rosary? Where are the stations of the cross? Where are the sacred steps? There's so many works, so to speak, in the Catholic system that help you uh, increase your justification. And James does not have any trace of man-made religious rituals being considered as the works which justify Abraham and Rahab. Their works are not religious rituals, but rather they are actions of obedience on the part of Abraham and actions of courage and trust on the part of Rahab. So these are actions which demonstrate a radical, true, and living faith. They are not religious uh, works that you have to do in order to earn more justification like in the Catholic system. Now, the Catholic response to what I've just said may be, well, if you have true faith, you will follow the true church. The Catholic Church is the only true church, and we have the authority from God. The sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church are from God through the church, and if you reject the church's teaching, then you are disobeying God. Thus, you, you don't have true faith in God. So this is, a, this is a much deeper argument, and it involves authority. If the true church is the Roman Catholic Church, and if God really gave them the authority they claim to have, then I am certainly bound to obey the requirements they set forth if I want to be justified before God. So if the Roman Catholic Church is the true church of God, then I must receive their sacraments, accept their mass, and believe all of their dogmas if I want to be in a proper relationship with God. Now, what if I believe the Roman Catholic Church is wrong? Not about everything. We, I agree with the Roman Catholic Church on a ton of doctrinal stuff. But what if I believe they're wrong, even about one thing? How can I test the Roman Catholic Church? Well, for me, it's the Bible. Ultimately, any supposed message or authority from God must align with what the Bible teaches. Sola fide means faith alone, but another important sola of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. Everything must be compared to Scripture and tested against Scripture. Are the Roman Catholic sacraments of baptism, penance, and mass consistent with Scripture? Are indulgences found in Scripture? What about purgatory? What about the perpetual virginity of Mary, a dogma all Roman Catholics must believe? Is that Scripture? If you want to go to James 2 and say, look here, a true Christian will produce works, that's fine. I agree. But do I have to do all of the Roman Catholic Church's religious rituals in order to be justified before God? Where do I go to find this answer? The Bible or the Roman Catholic Church? Well, spoiler alert, I believe we need to go to the Bible. So that's what we're going to you know, talk about in the next several episodes. Now, 
Uh, hopefully you uh, can appreciate or realize that these episodes require a lot of study and reading. And so this coming up weekend, I am involved with a youth event at our church. And so I will have very limited time. I do most of my recording and, and editing and getting everything ready on the weekends. Uh, a lot of my study is during the mornings of the week of, and then I record and do everything else on the weekend. So next week's episode will not be a direct dive into Sola Scriptura, but I will cover why Protestants and Roman Catholics have a different Old Testament. The Catholic Bible has extra books at the end of the Old Testament referred to as the Deuterocanonicals by Catholics, um, and those same books are called the Apocrypha by Protestants. So you may have heard either one of those, Deuterocanonicals or Apocrypha. They, they're the same collection of books. It's just Catholics call them one thing, Protestants call them the other. So that's what I'll cover next week. Our closing verse, uh, though you may not know how, is going to be related to my discussion next week regarding the Apocrypha. So I'm looking forward to that. Jesus says in Luke 11, 49 through 51, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Thank you.